taking people's time should not be efficient. It should be inefficient. It should be hard to take people's time. That's the mindset shift that's required. And that's what we do here. And that's why we're able to get a whole bunch of stuff done with a small team and 40 hour work weeks where everyone else is, has a team five or six or seven times the size of us. And they're busting their ass 90 hours a week. And they're still not getting as much stuff done as we are. We're simply getting stuff done because we give people time to do it. Welcome to Elevate, a podcast about achievement, personal growth, and pushing limits in leadership and life. I'm Robert Glazer, and I chat with world-class performers who have committed to elevating their own life, pushing the limits of their capacity, and helping others to do the same. Welcome to the Elevate podcast. Our quote for today is from Warren Buffett, and it is, what the wise men do in the beginning, fools do in the end. Our guest today, Jason Fried, is someone I've wanted to interview for a while. He's the co-founder and CEO of the popular project management tool Basecamp, the creator of the popular blog Signal versus Noise, and the author of Remote, Office Not Required, and Rework. He's also one of the business world's most innovative thinkers and leaders. Jason, welcome. I'm excited to have you join us on the Elevate podcast. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. So I don't think a lot of people realize that Basecamp actually started about 20 years ago as a, as a web design firm. What, uh, what were the early days of the company like and how, how, did, how did those early days help you evolve into what it is today? Sure. So the early days, yeah, we were a web design firm, mostly doing website redesigns. And we started getting busy. This was back in the, the early 2000s. And um, it was great getting busy, but we started to drop the ball. You know, we only had a few people. We started to grow a little bit. Once you do that, like you don't, you know, before when you were much, much smaller, you knew where everything was. But once you have a few more people involved in projects, like you don't know where things stand. You don't know who says what. Deadlines are sort of mysterious. You thought someone else talked to someone else, but they didn't. And before you know it, like email chains break down, in-person meetings don't work, and you kind of begin to get sloppy. And so we needed a better way to manage that process in those projects. And at the time, we looked around at a bunch of other tools, and none of them were doing things the way we thought they should be done. So we ended up building our own and we started using it with our clients and our clients kept saying, what is this thing you're using to manage this project? Like we have projects, we need something just like this because our projects are falling apart too. And we said, it's just this thing we made to do our own stuff. And then eventually enough people asked for it that the light bulb went on and we said, we have a product here. So we tightened it up a bit. Other people are going to have the same problems we have. And we ended up calling it Basecamp and put it on the market in February of 2004 and then about a year and a half later or so, it was doing more business for us than our website design business was. So we stopped doing website design and been focused on software ever since. It's kind of a familiar story. Slack has a sort of different version of, of the same story uh, in terms of solving your own problems. And then there's a market for that. I'm curious because I think this is something a lot of high growth companies and founders struggle with. You actually came full circle. So you had the Basecamp product, then you had all these ancillary products, and then you just went back to Basecamp and even renamed the company that. Can you talk a little bit about the decision on, on both sides to sort of expand and then why you kind of brought it back to the core? Yeah, you know, originally, when we were just getting started, we built a bunch of things because we didn't know what was going to work. So we built Basecamp, we built another product called Campfire, we built another product called Backpack, we built another product called Highrise, we built another product called Writeboard, we built another product called Tada List, we built <laughs> a bunch of stuff because we didn't know. You know, you kind of throw a bunch of stuff out there. And then it, over time, it became clear that we had one massive hit and then a few other successful things. But Basecamp was such a massive hit for us that it kind of made sense to go all in on that. Uh, further, 
we were beginning to neglect the other products because we were focused so much on Basecamp and we didn't want to grow our company to, we didn't want to grow our team to be able to manage four or five or six separate products all at once. We like keeping the company small. So we want to keep the company small and we had one massive hit compared to everything else. So it made sense to say, let's pour all of our energy, keep our team as small as we can, pour all of our energy into one thing that happened to be Basecamp. Let's sell off, spin off, or combine the other products into Basecamp and go all in on that. And while it seems on the outside like kind of a crazy thing to do, it really business-wise wasn't because Basecamp funded almost everything that we did anyway. And we didn't have to feel guilty about not paying attention to other things anymore. So I'm not going to say it was like an easy decision, but it, it kind of was the, the obvious decision. Sometimes the obvious decision is the hardest one to make because you don't want to admit perhaps that like the other things you did didn't work out as well, but that's fine. And so we did. So that's what we ended up doing. Well, I was going to ask you about that. Do you think a hit product gives you a sort of companies, a false sense of bravado and other products? Because for a lot of products, it's, it's right time, right place, right market. And I think people think they'll be able to recreate that just as easily. Yeah, I, I've come to realize that if you're fortunate enough to have lightning strike, um, <laughs> like ride that out because it's hard to have lightning strike. Yeah. And so if you have a hit, don't assume you're going to have a second one. Make sure you nurture that first one. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't try new things. Like, in fact, next year, we're launching another product that we said we, you know, we, said we wouldn't launch anything else besides Basecamp anymore. But five years have gone by, and we've decided that we, we have a new idea. So we're, we are going to launch something next year, and we hope it's a hit, but the chances are it will not be just because it's very hard to have a hit. So I think just coming to terms with the reality. The other thing I think that's important to note is that time and luck have a huge influence on what you're able to do. A lot of people want to take all the credit themselves. I, I think timing and luck is, is the biggest influence on your success, more so than anything else. So a lot of it's chance, being at the right place at the right time, getting lucky for a number of different reasons, um, having the opportunity to do something is lucky because a lot of those things you didn't even set up yourself. And so, you know, if all the conditions come together and you get the perfect storm in a good way, then recognize that that might not happen again. And that doesn't mean you're not good at what you do. It just means like the perfect storm didn't hit you again. Yeah, I think, I think that, <laughs> that is wide of his advice. And I, I've seen a lot of people fall into the, into the success trap. You, you alluded to sort of managing your growth. And as, as a software company, you've intentionally chosen to be private, control growth, eschew venture capital. Uh, one of the best speeches I've ever seen was actually given by your partner, DHH, at a startup uh, school, making fun of the VCs sort of putting down profitable businesses as, as lifestyle businesses during the interview, uh, internet boom. And I think he said being profitable was the equivalent of staying in school because we, we see the LeBrons, Jordans, and Facebook as the Facebooks and Amazons, but not the 90% who fail. Can you talk a little bit about that and the, the product price profit <laughs> equation that you guys talk about? Yeah. I mean, I guess like the thing that's important for us is to build something that's sustainable that's going to be around. And I think what David is sort of saying too is, you know, at, at that, he said a lot of things at that yeah. thing. And, and you <laughs> that know, that speech keeps going. It really, it's, it's yeah. a great speech. <laughs> and, and fundamentally it's like, you know, a lot of the things you learn in school aren't really applicable to things that exist in the world. And also a lot of things you do in the world aren't sustainable, like raising a bunch of venture capital. At some point, like someone might not give you money anymore. So then what happens to your business? Like, are you completely dependent upon the outside world to feed you or 
can you make your own food? Can you grow your own food? And like being a profitable business means you're growing your own food. You can be sustainable. And that's important if you love doing what you do. And this is the other thing that blows me away is so many people say they love what they do, yet they put themselves in a position where they can't continue to do that thing that they love because right. it's not sustainable. So we're always focused on trying to build something that's sustainable, which means we make more money than we spend, which means we never get ahead of ourselves. We don't put ourselves at risk. Now, that's not to say that the company will last forever because it absolutely will not. There will be a point where we lose where we go out of business, where we decide we don't want to do it anymore. I mean, no company or no person, nothing lives forever. So, But while you decide to stick around, you're going to have a better chance if you figure out how to get sustainable as early as you can than assuming you can figure that out later. It turns out that it's really, really hard to figure it out later, but a whole lot easier to figure it out early, primarily because when you're early, you can control your costs in a way that get out of control as you're as your business is older, as you hire more and more people, you take on more process and get a bigger office. If you do that, like your costs get out of control pretty quickly, but early on, if you don't hire people, you don't need, if you keep it really small, if you sublet some space or don't have an office at all, you can get to profitability fairly quickly and then you can stay there. And that's sort of the, the idea. So get there and stay there versus try to get there later after it's been too hard. Yeah. We seem to be hitting one of these periods that happen once a decade when all the investors suddenly realize that they want companies to be profitable. <laughs> yeah. I mean, wildly unprofitable growth plans stop being funded overnight. And as you said, the, the game changes and, and these companies don't have a business model to survive. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you're, we're starting to see that now, which is so interesting, which is like profitability is becoming fashionable again. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It's every 10 years, right? It, it is. Yeah. Seems like it. But the, th but the funny thing is, is that it's always fashionable for pretty much every other business in the world except technology businesses. Like the dry cleaner on the corner, yeah. they have to be profitable or they go out of business. The pizza shop goes out of business if they're not profitable. The, the small grocery store or the bodega, whatever it is on the corner, they have to make more money than they spend or they go out of business. It's like, that's what it is. So now every business in the world is trying to get profitable except the tech industry, which blows me away because the tech industry is one of the highest margin businesses there is. I mean, yeah. it's almost inexcusable for a software company not to make money. Like if you have thousands of customers in software and you're not making money, that's a problem. It's just like, I don't understand that. So anyway, point is to your point, it's like now things are swinging back around because you know, the WeWork debacle, Uber still losing billions of dollars. People are going like, what? Like, what, what is, how can you be losing a billion dollars a year? Like, how is that even possible, you know? Does your phone ring less or more during these times? Like, are, are, this is what I want to know. Are, well, you know, are people like, what's wrong with you when, when you know, <laughs> unprofitability is in, in vogue? Or now are they calling to get advice on, on profitability? Um, that's funny. Um, we just get asked different questions. Yeah. You know, now, now it's, it's kind of like, so you've been saying this for a while and now what do you think about other people starting to say it? And before yeah. that, it's like, you're saying something no one else is saying. Why are you so weird? It's just like <laughs> different, different kinds of questions. Um, but what, what I always say is like, there's nothing weird about us. We are the most mainstream business minds you could ever have. Like we are in the same boat as 99% of all other businesses in the world and entrepreneurs, which is they want to make money. They want to stay in business. They want to generate their own revenue. They want to be profitable. That's what businesses want to do. That's what every business strives to do. So we're not unusual. We might be unusual in the tech software world, but we're not unusual in the world. And the world is way bigger than software. And a lot of software people don't get that. So anyway, I feel like we're, we're like in 
we're really truly more like the pizza shop in the corner than, than Uber. Uber is just like a complete money losing machine. And the pizza shop in the corner is striving to stay in business so they can you know, make enough money so they can stay, keep their doors open and pay their payroll. That's what we're trying to do. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hey, Elevate listeners. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. (coughs) Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space, and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites is that they already know who I am, and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info. The ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com elevate all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash elevate. Right, but the the in the U.S. it's hard, right? Because I think he yeah. was right in that speech that, that the venture guys really paint everyone else who wants to make money as sort of unambitious, right? The, yeah. the sort of the sort yeah. of lifestyle business. Is it like, I think that's part of the difficulty is someone being, oh, well, I'm not, I could be bigger, right? First off, you can't let, I mean, well, you can do whatever you want, but <laughs> you, you, can't, you can't let others, someone else tell you how you should feel about yourself. Yeah. So like have a bunch of rich people say you're not ambitious enough. Well, whatever. I don't care. Like who cares? Uh, ambition is not a goal of mine. Like I want to make great things that I like, that people like, and I want to work with great people. None of those things have anything to do with ambition. They have to do with longevity, essentially. That's way more interesting to me. But secondly, um, again, if it's not sustainable, Right. The the ambition doesn't like if it's it's I don't know, I, sometimes I struggle with it because it's so simple. I feel like an idiot saying some of these things. It's like, what are you ambitious about? Are you right. ambitious about going out of business? Because if so, then go raise a bunch of money, and there's a pretty good chance you'll be ambitious enough to go out of business. Like, doesn't ambition mean? I mean, to me, it means like sticking around, like being able to continue to do the thing you want to do. Right. It means the long term, not a, not a blip in time. In fact, I actually am seeing more and more socially oriented and what would have been nonprofit businesses building a 
profit model because they're like, look, I just don't, I don't want to fundraise all day. I want to oh go my God, right. do what, yeah, I want to do what I do and have it be sustainable. So it's funny that that community seems to be understanding it more. Yeah. It, and it's great because I, I do know a bunch of people in that world and fundraising sucks and not knowing <laughs> if you're going to get enough money next year sucks. Like it sucks. Yeah. It's all you, all you end up doing. It's really, really difficult to do. So yeah, I think, um, you know, the other thing about the lifestyle business comment, and I, I do hear this all the time. It's like, look, every business is a lifestyle business, even the billion dollar businesses, even the small, like we're all doing this to live something, yeah. to do something. <laughs> so like your lifestyle might be, you're working 90 hours a week and you're exhausted and your company's going out of business eternally and you keep blowing off a bunch of cash and, and that's your lifestyle. My right. lifestyle is different. It's not that I have one and you don't, or you have one and I don't, we both have lifestyles. So lifestyle has typically been like a lifestyle business has been more of a pejorative term. Right. But the truth is, is that everyone who's in business has a lifestyle and they're all lifestyle businesses. I mean, people who are trying to be the next billionaire, they're doing it because they want a certain lifestyle. And that might mean they want a huge ego. That might mean they want a lot of respect. It might mean they want a lot of power, but they want a lifestyle of some sort. So like yeah. they're in the lifestyle business too, just a different kind. Or they might have a business, but not a life. <laughs> well, yeah, which is, yeah, unfortunately, I think the case. Equally sad. Yes. So you've taken a unique approach to, to financing. You've also taken some unique approaches to culture, especially in the tech world. Strict 40-hour work week, four-day work weeks in the summer. Uh, one of the first companies to go all in on remote work. What initially inspired these choices? And can you talk a little bit about the benefits that you've seen for the company and the people? Yeah, Um they didn't know all the choices didn't happen at once, right? So like different things come up over over time. At one point, we just thought like it'd be interesting to try working four day weeks because what would happen? Like, let's see what would happen. Because there's this, um, it's called Parkinson's Law, which is like work expands to fill the time available. Yeah. And so you give it five days a week and like, you could find five days worth of work. But like, what if we only give it four days? What would happen? So we began that experiment. What we found was that Less work definitely gets done, but not that much less. But three days, the problem is with four days is that if you lose a day for some reason, three days is too short for sure. Yeah. And so what we decided to do ultimately was just to do four-day work weeks in the summer, not all year round. So it was kind of modeled after like seasons and what it was like growing up. You go to school, you get off school in whatever June and you have your summer off and then you go back to school in the fall or wherever it is. And that's kind of a nice thing because like you're looking forward to ending something. You're looking forward to starting something, which is summer. Then you're looking forward to summer kind of ending at some point and you go back to school and you do that. Maybe you didn't look forward to going back to school, but like it was a change, right? And the corporate year, the corporate existence is monotonous. It's the same all the time. There's something special about breaking it up, I think. So, so come May, people get excited here to go down to four-day weeks and everyone gets a three-day weekend. And then come the end of September, people are like, you know what? Like, it'd be nice to have five days again because we want to get a little bit more stuff done and, and we've had a nice summer and now it's time to kind of dig back into work. And so we felt that like that was the best thing. So it's, it's a sliding scale of experimentation. That's one example. I forgot the other ones that you shared, but you know, we, we found our way there and it feels right to us. It doesn't come without its trade-offs. Like we do get less work done during the summer for sure. And there's, there's other trade-offs, but we're comfortable with those a few months of the year. We wouldn't have been comfortable with them all year round. Let's talk a little bit more remote work. You know, when you when you started this, it was really rare. You know, and now now it's becoming more common. You talked about something in your book, a concept that I really have have latched onto uh, this concept of rem work, and and 
I think there's actually a lot of data coming out now showing that these open office uh, spaces are literally like not productive and are producing worse productivity. So get, talk about why you started with a remote work and, and kind of explain the REM work concept because I think it's hugely helpful for people. Yeah, and, and I'll say REM work is, is unscientific. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm, no. yeah. I'm borrowing <laughs> a scientific term from REM sleep, but, but, but conceptually, yeah. So the idea is, um, well, first of all, remote. We've been remote pretty much from our fifth employee on, and it just works for us. It just feels right for us. It, it's right for a lot of reasons. We, we now get to find the best people all over the world rather than just the best people within a 20-mile radius of our, of our headquarters. You know? So I think that, that's a real positive. Um, the REM stuff is like, you know, we all know what a good night's sleep looks like. It's uninterrupted. Like We just know that. Nobody thinks that a good night's sleep is a night's sleep where your two-year-old is waking you up every 40 minutes or your one-year-old is crying and you have to go feed her. Or like Everyone knows that's not a good night's sleep. Or if there's like loud construction outside in the middle of the night or people are screaming like, or, or your partner is like nudging you all night, like whatever it is, like you just know that that's not a good night's sleep. A good night's sleep is like you go to sleep at let's call it nine and you wake up at seven or eight and like, or whatever it is, or six or whatever. And, and you're like, wow, that was, I slept through the night. That's awesome. Soundly, like, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what a good work day should look like. It should feel like I had a good work day. I wasn't interrupted all day long. I wasn't distracted all day long. I actually had a full eight hour day to myself to do my work and focus in on the work. And that's kind of the idea here is that, you know, in sleep, you have REM sleep, you have deep sleep, you have these different phases of sleep, and you have to get into those phases. You don't just put your head on the pillow and hit deep sleep instantly. You don't put your head on the pillow and enter REM sleep in the morning, in the early morning. You, you get into these phases. And if you're distracted, you're pulled out of them and you don't go right back into them. It takes a while. So if you're at work and your, your head's down on something and someone pulls you aside for something, like that just cut your moment in half. And now when you get back to work, you're not like right back into that thought. You've got to like slowly get back into that thought and, and get back into that mindset again. And it's very distracting and very disruptive. So we, we want people at base camp to have long stretches of uninterrupted time. And basically one of the ways to do that is to not have shared calendars. So most businesses have shared calendars where you can see everyone else's schedule. And if you want to get on someone's calendar, you just click a box and it fills in with color and it sends an invite <laughs> and they accept or they decline or whatever they do. But mostly they accept because that's what you do when you're a team player. And it just makes it so easy to take other people's time. And that's the problem is that people don't value time. They say they do. They say time is money and all this, but no, they value money because they have CFOs and comptrollers and budgets and all this stuff, you can't just go and take money from the company, but you can take time from other people all day long when you have a shared calendar system. So at Basecamp, everyone has a full eight-hour day to themselves, no planned scheduled meetings or anything mandatory for anybody. And if you ever want to hook up with someone and talk to them about something, you simply ask them. Like as a human being, you say, hey, hey, Jonas, uh, are you free at Thursday, on Thursday at two o'clock for like, you know, an hour or a half hour, I want to run some stuff by you. And he can go, yeah or no, or yeah, I mean, no, but I'm free Friday morning at 11. And you're like, I'm busy at 11. How about one? He's like, okay, cool. One's good. I'm like, one's good on Friday. Perfect. So we had negotiation. We had a little conversation about it. Is it as efficient as looking at a calendar? No, but taking people's time should not be efficient. It should be inefficient. Hmm. It should be hard to take people's time. That's the mindset shift that's required, and that's what we do here. And that's why we're able to get a whole bunch of stuff done with a small team and 40-hour work weeks where everyone else is 
has a team five or six or seven times the size of us and they're busting their ass 90 hours a week and they're still not getting as much stuff done as we are. We're simply getting stuff done because we give people time to do it. And once you do that, you can make a lot of progress with a small team. And I think that's sort of the, the, the secret, unfortunately. It shouldn't be a secret, but it's, the, it's, it's not even a secret. Everyone knows this to be true. Because again, if you think about sleep, it's, it's obvious. So you just have to think about work like you think about sleep and everything becomes a lot clearer. So no standing meetings? No, zero. Wow. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. And, and come on, you get a minute. You, you must enjoy these articles talking about the complete disaster that the open war isn't it vindicated? Oh, yeah. Sorry, I didn't get to that. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Yeah, I forgot. The open office. I mean, we have an open office, yeah. but we, what we have is you, what you need to have with an open office is a cultural understanding of the downsides of an open office. Yeah. You cannot think that open offices are just great because everyone gets to collaborate more. It's like, no, no. There are major downsides and trade-offs. Now, the big trade-off is that people can interrupt each other all the time without even meaning to. It's just easier to do so. And so what we do is we have this cultural understanding of, uh, and this comes back, we always come back to like, what's obvious in other ways and how can we apply that to work? So the, the sleep example is obvious. Everyone knows that you obviously will not have a good night's sleep if you're, if you're woken up all the time. Right. The same thing is true for be, how people behave at a library. So you walk into a library, it's a big open space, right? It's, a, it's an open workspace. Um, yet everybody in the world knows how to behave in a library. You're quiet, hushed voices, no voices at all. Why? Because people are focused. They're learning, they're thinking, they're reading, they're studying. And we know that the environment for that should be quiet. Yet you walk into an office, which should also be an environment where people are learning and thinking and working and reading and communicating through typing, like it should be quiet, but it's not. Most offices are chaos. They're chaotic. And it's so easy to interrupt people. You would never interrupt people at a library the way people well, you can interrupt people when they're not in meetings. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Right. <laughs> but, but the point is, is like, we just, so what we have culturally is this idea of library rules that everybody, we treat our office like not an office, but like a library. And once you treat your office like a library, everyone knows how to behave. You're quiet, hushed tones. You don't interrupt people. and all of a sudden, it just works. Just like we treat our day like a good night's sleep, we treat our office like a library. So then, then you can have an open workspace, just like a library is an open workspace, but you have to have those un the understanding that should act and feel and sound like a library, not like a traditional office. 
no, that, that, that makes a lot, right. It's the cultural norms. I, I think, yeah. you know, what you see today in these offices, everyone wearing noise canceling headphones to escape <laughs> being interrupted. Yeah. 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 It's like, I mean, some people here wear, wear headphones uh, occasionally because like they want to listen to music, yeah. but they're not drowning out other people's noises. It's a, you know, again, a different use case there. Well, what's well, a good segue? Uh, my next question, which was, you know, something you talk a lot about in your latest book, "It Doesn't Have to Be Crazy at Work," is the prevalence of of FOMO or fear of missing out, yes. which is rampant today. Uh, and and you coined a a new term instead called JOMO. So, what does what does JOMO <laughs> mean to you? And when and how did you start using it? Sure. So, JOMO is the joy of missing out, and the idea is is that. Nobody here should feel like they have to stay on top of everything that's happening across an organization. And one of the problems with things like Slack, for example, is that it's become way too easy to follow dozens of real-time conversations about a whole bunch of things that simply don't matter to you right now, but are spinning off notifications, are, are grabbing your attention. Like This is a toxic, terrible way to work. Yeah. So at Basecamp, the understanding is no one has to know anything about the company except for the project that you're on. And if you're curious about what's going on, at the end of every day, people are automatically prompted to write up what they worked on today. That's all posted back to a single page within Basecamp, the product itself. And Basecamp asks this question for people automatically. There's a feature called automatic check-in. So at 4.30, it sends everyone one notification a day saying, hey, What'd you work on today? And people write up what they worked on today in their own voice, in their own words, their own way. Some people, a few bullet points, some people, many paragraphs, some people tell stories, whatever it is. Some people show pictures of work they've done, whatever it might be. And if you ever want to know what's going on across the company, you can go to that one page and read in long form, like a newspaper, essentially, versus having to bounce in and out of all sorts of different places, trying to follow what's going on all the time. So you feel like you're not missing anything. No one should feel like they're missing anything if they're focused on their own work. The feeling of missing something should never enter into anyone's mind here at Basecamp. Unless, of course, they're missing the project that they're working on. But no one is. If you're working on it, you're not missing anything. So that's, it's just a different mindset. But you also believe in that more holistically, outside of work, social media, that we, we just need to stop worrying about everything else yes. that's not relevant to us, right? Yeah, like I don't pay attention to the news. I mean, I don't pay attention to industry news. I, like if something's really important, I'm going to hear about it one way or another. Like if, you know, the only like crisis is a different, like, hey, there's an in- incoming missile headed towards Chicago. Okay, I should probably know about that. Although maybe I shouldn't because there's nothing I can do about it. But like, I don't need to follow every news story every second of every day and, and read about like, people always, always ask me, do you see that latest article about so-and-so? I go, no, I didn't like, should I? And, and they'll usually say, no, no, no big deal. Or like, yeah, that's actually super interesting. And then I'll seek it out later. But like, I don't need to know it the minute it hits. I don't need to follow things the minute they happen. There's nothing urgent or important about most of the things that happen. Like I can catch up on, on them later if they matter. And most things don't matter. So it's like, just lay off the obsession with having to know everything as it happens. Uh, inside a company and outside a company. Right. I mean, your blog is called Signal Versus Noise. Um, as we've grown in an organization and people are like, well, what's going on with the European team? Or what's going on with this? And the European team's like, what's going on with the US team? And, I, it, and I've tried to explain to everyone, that, you know, if we communicate everything to everyone, you won't know what's important or not. <laughs> totally. Yeah. It's so true. It's so true. So yeah. I, yeah and the answer is yes. Yes, to what you just said. <laughs> Particularly, I mean, and you guys haven't scaled, you know, you've kept your growth control, but I think the faster you scale, the, the more exacerbated that problem comes because people 
I actually showed people a graph with like a flashlight and a ball. And as the ball gets bigger, right, the flashlight beam covers less of the ball. Yes. But they're like, oh, I used to know what was going on. I think some people adjust and get comfortable with that. And some people really don't. Yeah. Like I used to know what's going on. Now I don't like that's a problem. No, it's probably not a problem, actually. I mean, it might be depends who you are and your role. Like if your role is to know everything that's going on, like then, yeah. But that's not everyone's role. Most people shouldn't have that role. That should be like a really high level role not like an every employee role. And I think it's liberating to say, hey, most people here don't need to know what's going on unless they're curious, but don't feel like there's an obligation to know. There's not going to be a quiz. Like there's no pop quiz here. Like if you're curious because you're, you're curious, that's cool. But don't feel like you must know and you must stay on top of things and you must chime in and everything must be real time. Otherwise, if you don't chime in now, you're, gonna, you're never going to get your say. Like that's just... That's a toxic environment where everything's yeah. gone real time. It's much better to be asynchronous and slow time and let people get back to you a few days later versus like instantly. This expectation of immediate response is really damaging. So yes, there are times when you need to discuss something with someone in real time, of course, but those are, should be the exceptions and not the norm. That is great advice for, I think, any growing business. All right, last question. What's a personal or professional mistake that you've made that you've learned the most from? And it could be singular or repeated. Um, oh my gosh. Um, I, I don't know if it's classified as a mistake, but it's like a, a, a realization that I was wrong, which was that I used to, and I talked a little bit about this. I used to think there's no such thing as luck. I used to think that I was so fucking good that like, you know, um, <laughs> all this stuff is because we made it happen. I mean, of course you have to execute. You've got to have the ideas. You've got to yeah. be able to do good work. Yes, of course. But so many other people are capable of that as well. And many of them never get to, to do what we've done. And we got lucky. We are fortunate for so many different reasons. And I remember being up on stage actually at startup school as well, speaking there. I forget when it was, I think over 10 years ago now. And someone asked me about luck and I go, I don't believe in luck. And I mean, thinking back on that now, I feel like the biggest idiot <laughs> ever. I'm like that guy was I egotistical and wrong but I've come to really realize that. And so like, whatever it is that we do, you still want to do your best. You want to give yourself the best chance you can. I mean, you can get lucky. And if your thing's terrible, like you've blown that opportunity. So yeah, but so much of this is actually out of your control and it's actually really liberating. I find it really liberating to be like, let's just, let's go for it. I don't know if it's going to work and very little of what we're going to do has (laughs) anything to do with it. So let's just do the best we can. It's more fun that way, I think. So anyway, that's kind of the thing I would share. Awesome. Well, what, where's the best place for people to learn more about you, Basecamp, your books, uh, all your writing? Sure. So um, if you can follow me on Twitter, I'm at Jason Freed, F-R-I-E-D. Signal versus Noise is our blog. So signalvnoise.com will get you there or 37SVN. So 37SVN.com will get you there as well. Basecamp.com is our company and our product. And then we also have a podcast. So if you're listening to this, you probably like podcasts. Rework, R-E-W-O-R-K dot F-M is where our podcast is. So a lot of the topics we talked about, we talk about in in extreme detail once a week on our podcast. And um, those are the places. All right, great. Jason, thank you for sharing your story with us. You are a unique combination of of thought leader and practitioner that the business world uh, certainly needs more of. Oh, thanks, Rob. That's very kind of you. Appreciate that. All right, to our listeners, thanks for tuning in to the Elevate podcast today. We'll include links to Jason, his company, uh, his books, and everything he just mentioned on the detailed episode page at robertglazer.com. Thanks again for your support. And until next time, keep elevating. 
This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you wanna learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.